Welcome, everyone, to the fifth episode of Only Murders in the Writer's Room. I'll be your host once again, Denny Pivach, and before we review all 27 James Bond movies, I almost forgot that I had promised a few weeks ago to do something pretty more phenomenal for an episode of Omit War, Only Murders in the Writer's Room for short, of course. Very briefly, I'm going to summarize some ideas I had for spin-offs of the 2017 theatrically released Power Rangers movie. Spoilers to anyone who has yet to see a majority of the James Bond movies or a minority of the Power Ranger franchise. The first idea I had connected a randomized minority of the seasons from Power Rangers. I call it The Morphing Amid, a play on the title The Morphing Grid which is a certain power source that the Power Rangers, mainly all of them, use to become, well, Power Rangers. Now, the movie itself takes place just a little before Power Rangers Samurai. I believe it to be season 22, maybe season 21. There, we are first introduced to a tween named Zulficker, or Fick for short. He's a ranger in training, currently being trained by Mike Corbett, the second Magna Defender from Power Rangers Lost Galaxy. As the two train on their home planet, they're attacked by a few Moogers, villainously demonic henchmen from Power Rangers Samurai. Fick manages to morph on time before the Moogers can cause any bodily damage. However, just when he thinks he's safe, he's slashed from behind by Decker, a villain also from Power Rangers Samurai. Vic goes flying into the air and then lands on a cement-hardened circle. The circle turns out to be a portal that can only be unlocked with blood. Since Vic has started bleeding from his head, it unlocks the portal, and then he and Decker go zooming through it, which is not revealed until later to be a route to the multiverse. They land in an unusually small island. Due to the trip, both Decker and Vic aren't feeling their best. Their powers start to fade until Vic pulls out his temporary legendary morpher to become the Red Wild Force Ranger. Something suddenly snaps into Decker, and it's revealed to the audience through flashes that Decker is really Cole Evans, the OG Red Wild Force Ranger. Apparently, the timeline has been tampered with, and Cole forgot about his life as a Ranger. He forgot about his friends, Eric Myers and Taylor Earnhardt, aka the Quantum Time Force Ranger and the Yellow Wild Force Ranger. The two, sadly, eventually got together to start a family, but Cole grew jealous and tried to take that away from them. Cole's other friends, Danny and Max, the black and blue Wild Force Rangers, were also killed during a plane crash caused by M2. Princess Shayla and Alyssa, Cole's mentor and the white Wild Force Ranger, fought against Cole, but seemingly no one could destroy him. It turns out Cole was already taken control of by a Nylock, another reminiscent villain from Power Rangers Samurai. Even before he became Decker. Now, in Power Rangers Samurai, Decker was revealed to have been taken control over by a Nylock, but in my kind of fan film, it's already revealed that even before he became Decker, Cole was also a Nylock. In present time, as Cole starts remembering, Fick doesn't waste any time and slashes at him. Killing Cole, the morphing grid starts acting up and the skies begin showing cracks of light. Fick immediately teleports to the morphing grid to discover what could have possibly gone wrong. Apparently, someone else has also tampered with the morphing grid, and if it isn't fixed, it could mean the end of the multiverse. Why? Because the morphing grid holds so much power that if it were to go out of control, it could cause a burst of energy more powerful than any man-made weapon could produce. Before Fick can think of a plan, he's pulled into a portal by Merrick, the Silver Wild Force Ranger. Covered by his ranger suit and helmet, Fick has yet to discover that Merrick joined forces with his werewolf spirit, Zenuku, and has become a werewolf with human-like features. Nevertheless, the two travel to the past and discover a bunch of old enemies of the Power Rangers have teamed up to take control of the Morphing Grid. They plan to harness as little energy from the Morphing Grid when it was first created. With it, they can consume the energy that the they can consume the following energy that shall eventually increase for centuries to come, thereby becoming more powerful and leaving no one to stop them. The villains, of course, thinking of this, you know, for centuries as well. Fick improvises, grabs Merrick's teleporter and morpher, and puts them together to create a void manipulator. All ten enemies are zapped into a void, the stage between a ranger's morph. There's so much power, and at the same time, no power at all. Merrick and Fick fight against the enemies until their last breath. Unfortunately, their last breath won't be for another few millenniums. In a morph void, time doesn't pass by. It glitches. 
though I was originally thinking Merrick and Thick entering the void would be the end of this spinoff, I decided to make that only Act 1. As for Act 2, it takes place long after Merrick and Thick fought all, all the Power Ranger enemies, and but at the same time, they're also old. So, old all. The two have grown old together, and just as Merrick slowly dies, Thick sees a spark of purple light. It shoots at Merrick, de-aging him so many years that he eventually begins to disappear. Thick spastically spins around, hurting himself, and just before he dies, another spark of light is shot. Thick awakens to discover himself as a young Ryshok Goldar. Goldar was once an enemy of the mighty Morphin Power Rangers. He was a monstrous-looking werewolf with golden armor and golden wings attached to the back of it. However, this spin-off reveals Goldar was also once a human. He lived on a small planet, Glina, and was famous for being its noblest warrior. Though resembling a human, Goldar was far from that. He had incredible strength, endurance, and speed. Goldar was told by his master that eventually he would be able to don the armor of the Glinians. Unfortunately, one treacherous night, his home planet was attacked by an alternate version of Rita Repulsa, another villain of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, this version being played by Elizabeth Banks, to be more precise, and her henchmen, the Putties. At first, Goldar believed his planet had won the battle, until Rita turned him into a blue werewolf-like creature. Now seen as a monster, the Glinians shun Goldar. Before he ran away, he was able to shapeshift into a human hybrid and steal the enchanted armor of the Glinians. He then officially donned the look of the infamous Goldar that fans have come to know and be entertained by. Traveling light years to exact his revenge, Goldar finally confronts Rita and tries to defeat her once more. Unfortunately, she gets the upper hand, killing him entirely, and puts the Glinians to shame. Light years later, is revealed Goldar was resurrected by Rita and brainwashed him into fighting off the Power Rangers. This is not only the spin-off that connects the, to the 2017 Power Rangers movie, but also connects with many other seasons in the franchise itself. So, what did you think? Did you like Goldar getting a backstory? Should Merrick not have been the one to save Fick from disaster? Should more Rangers have been implemented into my synopsis? Any similarly relatable comments, questions, or concerns can be addressed in my Instagram at denny.pivac. That's D-E-N-I, a literal dot, P-I-V-A-C. No spaces, no caps, no booby traps. Now we go on to reviewing all 27 James Bond movies based strangely on just half that amount of books that author Ian Fleming made popular. Why? Because it has officially been 60 years since MI6's top secret agent leaped onto the big screen, more specifically in Europe. It wouldn't be for another several months until Canadians got introduced to the famous super spy. So, let's begin with the first, 007 Dr. No, the first movie slash the first in someone to introduce the legendary Sir Sean Connery. This movie sees late actor Sir Sean Connery begin the mantling of 007. Gen Z and Gen Alpha might recognize him as most likely their parents, i.e. Gen X and Millennials, brought them up on the Indiana Jones franchise, with Sir Sean Connery playing Indy's dad, or many older Disney movies some others might have seen. As for generations prior, they most likely saw him in almost every other early 20th century movie. Ever. And I'm not talking about the studio. Now, Although I didn't grow up watching Sean Connery as Bond, nor did I start my 007 craze with his era of installments, that doesn't mean what I'm about to say automatically implicates the mass majority of movies he has been in as 007. Sadly, with that said, Dr. No is mostly underwhelming. Though I find a majority of movies from the 60s particularly underwhelming, Dr. No was especially surprising considering the second James Bond movie I ever watched was From Russia With Love, and that was far more fast-paced, sensually intriguing, and had quite a handful of suspenseful moments. Dr. No reminded me of the tone I felt I brought to the pilot of my own radio show. I mean, it was alright, but I felt it could have been given a little bit more... umph. With that said, and it feels somewhat nice saying my catchphrase yet again, it's time to execute this story's execution. The only thing I would have changed in Dr. No is the pacing. Had some points of exposition, dialogue, and heck, even brawls happened a lot quicker, I would have not yawned as many times. 
On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 implying masterpiece and 1 implying disappointment or just meh, I would give a minimum rating of 6.5 to Dr. No, a maximum rating of 7.5, and, and an average rating of 7. As for From Russia With Love, that movie holds quite a bit of nostalgia. From Russia With Love was the first VHS I consciously bought, wanted to buy, and what initially started up my VHS craze. Currently, I have 156 VHSs. You can't even imagine how many DVDs I've collected in the last past few years. Now, you might be asking, why did I buy it? Well, at the time, which I'll go into a little deeper later in the episode, I had just learned about 007, and the cover of the VHS fascinated me. Cover artwork tends to fascinate me from books to albums, even though I don't know what I'm getting myself into, I still admire the artistry. Anywho, from Russia with Love is my favorite Connery Bond movie, and probably one of my top five favorite Bond movies of all time, because, like I said before, it is a much faster pace than its predecessor, has much more of a sensually intriguing story, and a decent amount of suspenseful moments. Since watching it, I have never been able to look at the tip of a businessman's shoe normally ever again. I don't think I will ever again. As for the quote-unquote executing a story's execution, I'll only be doing that for one Bond movie from each era, seeing as how I only have less than an hour to review seven eras, 27 movies, and 60 years of Bond, I'll be saving my change time for the first more movie. With that said, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would give a minimum rating of 8.5 to From Russia With Love, a maximum rating of 9, and an average rating of 8.7, or 87% fresh per Rotten Tomato standards. As for Goldfinger, the threequel, we fortunately fall back to the feel of its predecessor's predecessor. Though Goldfinger has sprinkled some iconic lines, moments, and even characters that will live long, be parodied, and be remembered for centuries to come, I still found it underwhelming. I felt the villain Goldfinger was mostly bland, though he did have his rare few moments of intimidation. I also felt the same way for the token devious villain plan, and for many calling this Connery's best Bond movie and one of the top five best Bond movies of all time, my expectations were high enough that they came crashing down like the ejector seat in Goldfinger after I finished watching Goldfinger. I give Goldfinger a minimum rating of 7, a maximum rating of 7.5, and, and an average rating of 7.3. Next up is a Bond movie that I would have put neck and neck with from Russia with Love had it not been for that other movie's nostalgic purposes, 1965's Thunderball. Though many could argue that the movie is not as faithful to the book as it could have been, and that Martine Beswick as Paul Kaplan was the far better Bond girl than the late Claudine Auger or actress Luciana Paluzzi, the movie is still entertaining. From time to time, there is lengthily drawn-out exposition, but there are also a few incredible action scenes sprinkled throughout. One, in particular, is the underwater fight between the U.S. freaking Coast Guard and the main villain's henchman, Emilio Largo. Harpoons are shot, sharks are chowing down, and Bond is struggling for air. With a minimum uh, rating of 7.8, a maximum rating of 8.6, and an average rating of 8.2, 1965's Thunderbolt is one of Connery's better Bond installments, in my humble opinion. As for 1967's You Only Live Twice, this Connery installment has been parodied the most. From the design of Bond's wackiest tools to the design of Bond's wackiest tool, Blofeld, this movie has become a cult classic of its own right. In this installment, we see Bond faking his own death to travel to Japan and discover the five quintessential W's behind the planning of war. When the leader of the evil spy organization Spectre is revealed, aka the man with the white cat, he also reveals he's just a pawn on a grander scale. Not only does the installment leave many more questions than answers, like trash in the woods, but Bond has just confronted his soon-to-be greatest threat, arch-nemesis Ernest Stavro Blofeld, played by Halloween alum Donald Pleasance, who made both his character and the design memorably legendary for cinematic history. However, in the Daniel Craig era, Blofeld was played by actor Christoph Waltz and was revealed to actually be Bond's adoptive brother, which is why my ranking of 2015, Spectre, might seem a little more justified because of the twists and turns. 
As for this movie's rating, I give it a minimum of 7.1, a maximum of 7.9, and an average of 7.5. It's a movie that took itself too seriously that it unintentionally instigated parody. However, speaking of parodies, the first non-canonical Bond installment was released the same year as You Only Live Twice. Actually, just a few months before it. More so a parody rather than a loosely based adaptation of its original source material, 1967's Casino Royale sees a majority of the cast from the original Pink Panther movie and 007 alumni take on numerous roles in an oddly satisfying Austin Powers inspiring flick. I simply give it a 7.5 because, much like its canonical predecessor, it was made for what it was initially meant for. Nothing more. Now we go on to a movie that many wanted to see as parodical, but is actually much more serious than others could imagine. 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. This movie is dark, but in the most unimaginable of ways. Number one, Blofeld brainwashes poor innocent women into becoming his deadly sleep agents that cause chaos worldwide. Number two, one action scene shows one of Blofeld's henchmen skiing rapidly down a mountain and then going headfirst flying into a tree chipper. And the movie has the guts, pun intended, to show the henchmen as well. Number three. At the very end of the movie, Bond, played by George Lazenby just this once, and Tracy, played by Dame Diana Rigg, who many might not know recently played Miss Pumphrey in PBS's remake of All Creatures Great and Small, get married. As the newlyweds drive down a hill, Blofeld is killing them and then shoots Tracy, just missing Bond. Yeah, you heard it correctly. In just a matter of a few minutes, Bond retired got married, and then lost his wife to his arch-nemesis. Bond then cradles Tracy in his arms and says, in such a repressive tone, I was tearing up near the point of breaking down. Bond says, we have all the time in the world. <laughs> I'm not crying. I, I'm just about to... Sneeze. <laughs> Sorry. That's over. Uh, where was I? Uh, oh yeah. Why, Fleming? Why? Uh, you wrote our boy a happy ending and couldn't even wait until the next book to destroy it. You just had to give him the boot for the risk this movie took. Oh, man, I have to give it a minimum rating of at least seven and a half. But for the tragedies this movie gave my boy Bond, I give it a maximum of eight and a half. So, an average rating of eight. Seems fitting, no solid, no definitive, just a typical tweener. Anywho, after Connery's return slash departure slash hiatus slash whatever the heck you want to call it from Bond, 1971's Diamonds Are Forever is just meh. As what was thought to be Connery's last Bond movie, it's terrible. As a filler slash hyper for the new Bond, it's not bad. It's an okay movie, but I'll sadly give it a 7 out of 10. Now, 1973's Live and Let Die sees late actor Sir Roger Moore taking on the mantle of 007. And, as for his big premiere, I'm sorry to say to a lot of 007 fans, but I found this movie to be one of Moore's weaker entries. I did some further research on the movie and discovered that some of the cast were trying to retain a Connery feel within the movie. They apparently aimed for a serious spy thriller, but still desired some charming fun along the way. However, the book the movie is based on, which is also of the same name, was also a huge inspiration for a later Bond movie, 1989's License to Kill. We'll get into that movie a little bit later, but let me just say that as an unofficial remake, License to Kill is the far better version. Live and Let Die is a surprisingly campy, action-packed adventure movie, left with a lot of red herrings that were meant for its plot holes. One big plot hole is the villain, Kananga, and his ad advantages. The movie shows that Kananga, played by the late Yafet Koto, has connections with many black communities around the world, from the USA to further down south. However, it's never explained exactly how he does. Now, Kananga's headquarters are on a small Caribbean island called San Monique, 
where the villagers are very suspicious and Kananga manipulates them with movie magic. I assumed the villagers would have been brainwashed to become Kananga's never-the-wiser-sleeper agents. They would then be sent around the world and alert Kananga about the succession of each of his devious plans. However, that is not the case. Maybe the book dove a little bit deeper with how Kananga was so communicative, but as the movie is, Live and Let Die could not have gotten more confusing. I give this 007 installment a minimum rating of 7, a maximum rating of 7.5, and an average rating of 7.3. Yet again. Now, before 1973's Live and Let Die, Sir Moore had gained quite some popularity for starring in a similar spy thrilling early 60s TV show called The Saint. Think of it like an unironically modern day Robin Hood. Simon Templer, codenamed The Saint, rescues the poor from the good, gaining numerous seasons, books, remakes, specials, a fan club, and even a 90s film adaptation starring Val Kilmer aka 1995's Batman as the title character, it is no wonder why Roger would have been considered the top choice to continue as Bond. With that said, Moore's second entry as 007 regained my confidence in the franchise. 1974's The Man with the Golden Gun is what I believe the cast was trying to make their predecessor feel like, a campy but still pretty entertaining action flick. Not only did Moore remind me more pun intended, of Connery's Bond, but I also felt like he incorporated some parts from his Saint Full days. I give Man with the Golden Gun a minimum rating of 7.5, a maximum rating of 8.5, and an average but truly solid rating of 8. Now we go on to Moore's third entry, 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me. Apparently, this entry went through somewhat of a development hell due to its predecessors not getting enough approval or money. There were also a lot of legal issues and the movie was releasing slash competing with the beginning of a soon-to-be popular science fantastical franchise. However, the movie went all out costing nearly 14 million dollars, which would now be inflated to 70 million and scored getting back 10 times its budget, aka just a little under a billion. In my opinion, The Spy Who Loved Me did not seem to change much of what The Golden Gun, the man with The Golden Gun I mean, or Live and Let Die was trying to do but I still enjoyed it as, as much as its predecessors. Also, the villain Carl Stromberg, played by the late Kurt Jurgens in The Spy Who Loved Me, is a topical one. His devious plan is to create an underwater environment, a new civilization, and destroy everything else entirely. Basically, the movie serves as commentary about climate change, global warming, and global fighting. As for what I would have changed, that just comes down to Bond's entrance. Instead of 007 being the one sleeping with someone and then going off on a mission, which eventually leads to a pretty intense ski chase, it would have been cool to have actress Barbara Bach, character Agent Triple X, to do it. Not only defying, defying gender roles, but also showing how incredible her, true, her character truly is. Sorry for the mess up of words, and I believe I mispronounced this, Barbara Bach, like Bach the famous musician. I give The Spy Who Loved Me a minimum rating of 8.5, a maximum rating of 9.5, and an average rating of 9. It's suspensefully action-packed, but still retains the campiness of previous installments. Now, we go on to an installment that is pure campiness, but surprisingly retains some action-packed suspense of previous installments. 1979's Moonraker. So, remember when I mentioned that The Spy Who Loved Me was released slash competing with the beginning of a soon-to-be popular science-fantastical franchise? Well, that so-called sci-fi franchise just so happened to be Star Wars. And due to the first movie's unbelievably and unimaginably immaculate success... Eon Productions and UA slash United Artists Studios decided, hey, let's have a Bond movie in space. Space, 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 space. With that, Moonraker went from a book about the fear of nuclear war to a flick about astronautic spies fighting each other with laser guns around our solar system. <sighs> Anyways, 
with the return of late actor Richard Keel as Jaws, one of my favorite Bond villains slash henchmen, Moonraker is a decent Bond movie, but it certainly does not take itself seriously enough to be as similar to its predecessor. I'll give it a minimum rating of 7.5, a maximum rating of 8, and an average rating of 7.8. If you'd like to witness the moment Bond became a parody, this movie ought to do it. Moore's next Bond installment, 1981's For Your Eyes Only, was supposed to follow shortly after 1971's The Spy Who Loved Me. But because of, yet again I say, Star Wars' success, 1979's Moonraker was forced upon us. Now, the late actor Bernard Lee was supposed to return for this installment as Bond's boss, codenamed N. But due to being diagnosed with stomach cancer just as production began for that movie and dying just a few months after, Four Your Eyes only reintroduced an all-new liaison of Bond's, Bill Tanner. Though I have nothing against Michael Goodliffe's portrayal from Man with the Golden Gun, or James Villers from Four Your Eyes Only, or Rory Kinner's portrayal for most of the Daniel Craig era, I did enjoy Michael Kitchen's portrayal the most from the Pierce Brosnan era. But anywho, For Your Eyes Only falls back to some of the Connery's earlier to some of Connery's earlier installments, not the, but his, of course. Too much exposition! Though there are some clever one-liners sprinkled throughout here and there, and Bond literally shuts down his chick magnetism for a few of the so-called Bond girls, there are some jaw-dropping action scenes, and a few good moments here and there, I can only give For Your Eyes only a minimum rating of 7.5, a maximum rating of 7.9, and an average rating of 7.7. As for the mention of late actor Bernard Lee, I find it awkward his last Bond movie had to be, for lack of a better summarization, Bond in space, 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 I wish the studios had just stuck with For Your Eyes Only because I felt Lee's portrayal of M could have made the movie a bit more, and for lack of, yet again, a better word, more tolerant. Fun fact, Lee has a grandson named Johnny Lee Miller, who is also an actor Many Gen Z and Gen Alpha might have seen him on Netflix's The Crown or CBS's Elementary. Many Gen X and Millennials might recognize him from 1995's Hackers or 1996's Train Spotting. And any generations prior might only have seen him in, on syndicated television. But the point I'm trying to make is the average age of actors who have played M are around 55 years. Johnny is nearing that age, and I believe he is talented enough to take on such a prestigious role as M, seeing as how Daniel Craig's run as Bond has come to an end, and most of the time cast and crew members are rebooted for all new members, for an all new installment, that is. I think Mr. Miller would make a great addition to the 007 family. No offense to, Ra uh, to Raph Fiennes. Oh man, I almost said Ralph Fiennes. I've been dying to pronounce his name correctly. Raph finds betrayal, but seeing as how he's currently working on another spy-led franchise, aka Kingsman, I think it is time for an all-new generation to take on an older one. Once again, no offense to Mr. Fiennes, great actor, I just think that it's incredible that an all-new generation, more specifically Miller's, can be taken on to a whole new level with the Bond generation or Bond franchise. Anyways, more second-to-last Bond installment, 1983's... <coughs> and I don't know if uh, this is appropriate to say. Uh, 1983's Octopussy is the most cholerophobic of them all. If nobody knows or understands the term cholerophobic, it means fear of clowns. And with Bond and a partner of his dressing up as circus clowns, one would have to have a pretty tough gut to brave this one out. I know I had to. With a ridiculous name for a Bond girl, a ridiculous plan for the villains, plural, and a serving of popcorn flick vibes, Octopussy could honestly be seen as nothing more than a filler for Morris series, similar to Moonraker. I gave it a minimum rating of 7.5, a maximum rating of 7.9, and an average rating of 7.7. .7. Though the same as For Your Eyes Only, it's rated because of, it's rated because of a whole new basis. Now, the same year that Octopussy was released, so was another Bond movie, 1983's Never Say Never Again. 
Though well-known for basically remaking 1965's Thunderbolt, it's still considered an unofficial remake because of the fact that Never Say was not only written by the same writers as Thunderbolt, but it was distributed by MGM's competitor Warner Bros. I mean, they were competing at the time. I highly recommend looking over the movie's Wikipedia page as well as the links that Witka provides because it is a truly surprising and rich part of 007 history. Anyways, with Batman alumna Kim Basinger replacing the late Claudine Auger as the Bond girl Domino and Barbara Carrera replacing Luciana Paluzzi as Bond villainess Volp, I give Never Say Never Again the same rating as its original source material. 8.2 As for Sir Roger's final Bond installment, 1985's A View to a Kill, which I always mispronounced as A View to Kill, like a view so beautiful is literally to die for, this movie also did not serve as Moore's big farewell. Did not serve well, I mean. Though I find it to be one of the more tolerable Moore installments, I would have preferred Moonraker or The Spy Who Loved Me to be Moore's finale because of how cinematically big they went. That's not to say that A View to a Kill did not go similarly big, but I was unexpectedly getting Lethal Weapon vibes. You know that 80s film series that got adapted into a Fox TV show starring Blank Man? Also, it didn't help that the hero, Bond, and his love interest, Stacey, had a 22-year age gap. Bond was old enough to be her father, for crying out loud. But that is not to say that late actress Tanya Roberts did not make Stacey a terrible Bond girl. She's quippy, quirky, and persistent when it comes to confronting the movie's main villain, of course. Actor Christopher Walken as Max Zorin. If that name doesn't sound familiar, familiar, look him up and most childhoods shall unravel faster than a cat unravels yarn. I give a view to a kill a minimum rating of 7.5, a maximum rating of 7.9, and an average rating of 7.7, simply because it was, yet again, another Bond finale letdown. With Sir Moore passing down the 007 metaphorical torch to actor Timothy Dalton, we begin what I like to call the popcorn era of James Bond. As much of the cast and the double, as much of the 007 cast and crew took many of their projects seriously, a lot more action can be noticed taking place within these upcoming stories, rather than just the typical drawn-out exposition. As a popcorn flick, Mr. Dalton supposedly didn't have much to worry about. Though Gen Z and Gen Alpha can admire him as Mr. Pricklepants in 2019's Toy Story 4 or as Chief Niles Calder in 2018's DC's Doom Patrol, Gen X and Millennials can also admire him as Boris Pachenko in 1977, 1997's The Beautician and the Beast, and any generations prior would only know him from syndicated television, one must admit how much the actor takes his craft incredibly seriously as well as the other cast and crew members that brought us 1987's The Living Daylights. Released the same year as the 007 franchise's 25th year anniversary, this popcorn flick rebooted the campiness of Moore, but also managed to remake the charm of Connery and lackluster action from Lazenby. With Sala, aka actor John Rhys Davies, appearing as an unexpected ally of James, and having the, one of the most incredible and I... Um, don't want to say this word because I'm not sure if it's inappropriate or not. But that movie that stars Aaron Taylor Johnson as a vigilante, that movie's title, and if you know what that movie is, he wears like a green and yellow suit. The name of that character, this is why I'm describing the song as one of the best James Bond themes of all time. Living Daylights, I'm giving a minimum rating of 8.3, a maximum rating of 8.9, and an average rating of 8.6, but a good 8.6. Now, though it is not uncommon for Bond movies to quote-unquote borrow elements from previous stories, 1989's License to Kill is actually another installment in the surprisingly long line of unofficial 007 remakes. But it's surprisingly better than the original material. Not only does the movie take itself more seriously, in fact, going so far as to feel like a realistic spy thriller, like 2015's Sicario, which also stars actor Benicio Del Toro, but it shows the return of previous actors from Live and Let Die, 
my favorite being the late David Hedson, Hedison reprising his role as James Bond liaison since Dr. No, CIA agent Felix Leiter. With Timothy Dalton also returning with the second and sadly final appearance as 007, this movie is by far one of my top 10 favorite James Bond movies, maybe even top 5 of all time. Though I have such little time to praise every singular moment, I'll just briefly list my top 10 favorites. Number 10. The laugh that James Bond and Robert Davi's character, Franz Sanchez, share atop Sanchez's uh, casino headquarters. Number 9. The brutally realistic but still creative kills. Number 8. Homages to previous installments. For example, the tilting of the truck uh, James drives in the climax is an homage to the tilting of a car Sean, Connery, uh, bo- Sean Connery's Bond drove in 1971's Diamonds Are Forever. This uh, Number 7. This is the first time James goes raging rogue. Number 6. James and Felix's tight re- uh, friendship. Number 5. Once again, I say uh, David Hedison returning as Felix Leiter. Number four, a deeper look into Moneypenny and Bond's tighter friendship. Number three, the truly well-choreographed action scenes, fights, stunts, etc. Number two, making the Bond girls more understandably realistic and not ditzy companions. And number one, the overall hard work and dedication from the entire cast and crew to make one of, if not my favorite, Bond movie of all time. I give License to Kill a minimum rating of 8.5, a maximum rating of 9.5, and an average rating of 9. But this rating just barely exceeded another one. Now, although I enjoyed License to Kill, many others seemingly did not consider it. Many others did not seemingly considering it was the lowest grossing installment of the franchise and not as well perceived as its predecessors. Though one could uh, argue License to Kill walked so 2006's Casino Royale could run, it would not be for another seven years until the next Bond movie was released in theaters. With that said, 1995's GoldenEye is yet again another suspensefully action-packed, realistically serious spy thriller that is still able to balance out some charmingly witty, comedic moments and sensually romantic ones too. This sees actor Pierce Brosnan taking on the mantle as 007. Gen Z and Gen Alpha might know him from the recent superhero blockbuster Black Adam playing the role of Dr. Fate. Gen X and Millennials might also know him from the 2008 rom-com film adaptation of Mamma Mia! The Musical playing the role of Sophie's dad. And any generations prior would once again have only seen him on syndicated television. Since time is of the essence, I'm yet again just going to list my top 10 favorite moments from this movie. Also, because these episodes require to be way too long, and for me to talk about a movie for like an hour with no tete-a-tete, no back and forth, I'm just going to stick with these quickies. My 10th favorite moment of the movie is the opening, a perfect way to build up the new face of 007. Though it was pretty much uh, spoiled in the advertising, it's still pretty good. Number 9, the protagonist and antagonist's connection. Number 8, much like License to Kill, which I forgot to mention, there are also a lot of memorable lines from this from both movies. Number 7, the connection between the Bond girls. Number 6, Felix Slider's stand-ins, i.e. actor John Baker as Jack Wade and late actor Robbie Coltrane as Valentin Zukovsky. Once again, the truly well-choreographed action scenes is my fifth favorite moment, fights, stunts, etc., Number four, also once again making the Bond girls more understandably realistic and not ditzy companions. Number three, the updated version of the classical 007 gun barrel opening. Number two, the movie's musical composition. And number one, once again, the overall hard work and dedication shown by the entire cast and crew to make one of, if not my favorite Bond movie of all time. Yet again, I give another 007 installment a minimum rating of 8.5, a maximum rating of 9.5, and an average rating of 9. This rating yet again just barely exceeded another one. And now, it's story time. Several years ago, Danny's family and him were staying at a hotel when they decided to have a movie night. They flipped through the channels like crazy until Danny's eye caught a familiar face. He'll never forget the moment he caught upon Pierce Brosnan saying the famous line, Bond, James Bond. 
He had just recently watched Mamma Mia! the movie, which also starred Brosnan. Though he had never heard or even saw any of Brosnan's previous work, but whenever he did recognize an actor that he saw before in another movie, oh golly did he get giddy. His dad switched back to the channel where they saw Brosnan on, and they watched the remainder of what they would soon to come to know as 1997's Tomorrow Never Dies. Honestly, I'll never forget such quintessential memories as those. Anyways, Tomorrow Never Dies is not only what convinced me to continue my passion for filmmaking, storytelling, or critiquing, but also stirred up an all-new passion, Ian Fleming's 007. As for the story, I feel that Brosnan's sequel was ahead of its time. You see, Bond's new enemy is Elliot Carver, played by Jonathan Price, a business tycoon who's obsessed with fame and fortune relating to global news. Bond is curious how, is, how he is able to always get the first scoop before anyone else can. Answer? Carver literally makes the news. His headline might read a possible war between the British and Chinese after a torpedo attack on a submarine. Well, the Chinese certainly didn't do it, and neither did the British. But you know who did cause a torpedo attack? Carver. The man is so obsessed with news that he doesn't care who gets hurt, who could potentially get hurt, or who must be punished for the hurting. This guy sounds very similar to a man who just recently obtained an increasingly popular social media app that is known for spreading news faster than a cheat on caffeine. But maybe I'm just reading too much into this, pun intended. Purely based off nostalgia, I give Tomorrow Never Dies a minimum rating of 8.5, maximum rating of 9.5, and an average rating of 9. As 1999's The World's Not Enough, or as the fans call it, Twine for short, this is Brosnan Bond installment is one that truly splits me. GoldenEye was obviously Brosnan's Bond peak. Tomorrow was Brosnan's Bond stabilizer. And Dad, aka Die Another Day, was really just an unofficial remake of 1974's The Man with the Golden Gun, which I found rather odd considering Twine was released the same year as Golden Gun's 25th year anniversary. But nevertheless, Twine is still a good movie, a good Bond movie that is, but there is just one thing that I would change. Though many tend to say actress Denise Richards as the main Bond girl would be something to change, I actually enjoyed her performance. The one thing I would change is the movie's plausibility. For one, the villain has a bullet that is lodged into their head that is able to make them immortal somehow. Weird. Also, the gadgets that Bond's tech whiz Q comes up with seem incapable of protecting Bond that well. Although I will say, considering this was the late and great actor Desmond Llewellyn's final performance, it did make me tear up when his character Q decided to retire and have comedian John Cleese take on the mantle as Quartermaster, or Q for short. However, I would say that the cast and crew were trying to slowly slip their way back into the implausibility side of 007, since 2002's Die Another Day goes completely off the rails with implausibility. With that said, I'll give Twine a minimum rating of 8.5, a maximum rating of 9, and an average rating of 8.7. Though this movie falls in the same category as far from Russia with Love, that movie definitely tops this one by a long-er shot. As for Die Another Day, what can I say? Y'all really want me to go at this movie, like, hard? Heck no, this movie was obviously a nostalgic field adventure. How do I know this? Because not only is comedian John Cleese's new Quartermaster headquarters filled with gadgets from almost every previous installment, examples widely range from the Crop Subski from 1983's Octopussy to the cartoon-looking jetpack from 1965's Thunderball, and not only does Die Another Day's villain steal the exact devious plan that the man with the golden gun had, i.e. a humongous solar-powered laser gun, but it also is trying to make satire out of the ridiculous names of main characters whilst giving characters ridiculous names. With that said, I give Dad, D-A-D, a solid 8 out of 10. No minimum, no maximum, because, like, why? Anywho, 2006's Casino Royale sees actor Daniel Craig taking on the mantle of 007. Gen Z and Gen Alpha might know him from the 2011 CG theatrically underrated masterpiece, or recognize his voice at least, from The Adventures of Tintin, 
or the 2012 CG theatrically underrated crossover live-action masterpiece Cowboys and Aliens. Gen X Millennials might know him from Paramount's 2001 film adaptation of Laura Croft Tomb Raider, The Game, or DreamWorks' Road to Perdition. I guess Perdition? 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 I'm I'm always confused how to pronounce that word correctly. I think it's Perdition, but I'm not sure. Correct me in the comments if you will. Anyways, similar to Brosnan, any generation's prior would have only seen him on syndicated television. Now, after the cheesiness of a 007 bloated the franchise one too many times sony was like hey remember how dark license to kill was it truly felt like an ian fleming book why don't we do that and then some jerk studio exec was like yeah but you can only use almost nothing related to the franchise how's that sound with that out of the way casino royale officially became james bond's reboot or as i like to call it a rebond. I'm sorry for that bad joke. Much like a majority of the Bond installments, Casino Royale feels right at home for its generation. Fast-paced, but expositional. Intense, but slower burns at times. Action-packed, with the hint of sensuality. Comparing it to the 1967 adaptation and the 1954 TV special, this one outranks them all. For sure. I give Casino Royale a solid minimum of 9, a solid maximum of 9, and a solid average of 9. Because, well, I think after you all watch the movie, you can understand. Since we're cutting close with timing, I'll just briefly summarize and rate the next three Craig Bond movies. Pretty, you know, briefly. 2008's Quantum of Solace, for me, was a so good it's bad movie, or so ridiculous it's uh, good. There were a lot of great moments, but not particularly arranged well. I give it an 84%. 2012's Skyfall was a decent James Bond movie, but not one I truly felt signified the impact in 50th and 50th year anniversary of the franchise. I give it an 85%. Now with the return slash introduction of the evil organization Spectre, Bond's arch nemesis Blofeld, and other nostalgic properties, I give 2015's Spectre an 86%, an expositionally intriguing movie. As for 2021's No Time to Die, and I truly hate saying this because of how much I admire the cast and crew and other projects, Craig's big send-off was a big letdown. Severe spoilers to anyone who has yet to see this movie, but in just one movie, and I'll wait for you guys to stop this, just one, they not only killed off Bond's bestie, Felix, now played by Jeffrey Wright from HBO's Westworld, they not only killed off Bond's arch nemesis, Blofeld, played by Chris Waltz from Tarantino's inglorious, plural, B-word, so easily in the first few minutes of the movie, also that plural B-word is a curse word, so I can't say that, and they not only gave Bond a daughter, but they also killed off Bond. I understand one must find a way of getting around to the new face of 007, but unless the next few movies connect with Craig's era, there is seemingly no point in killing off 007 himself. The credits even read, James Bond will return. Not 007 return, not Bond will return, which I was thinking could imply his daughter, but they actually said James Bond will return. With this rant, I bid no time to die in 81%. It may, be as, it may not be as low as other Bond installments, but by golly, it does not deserve anything higher. <sighs> and finally, I would like to quickly praise the entire 007 cast and crew, from those who began on Dr. No to those who began during No Time to Die, though I had such little time to express my sincere gratitude. Each and every one of you made my childhood even more enjoyable with this franchise. With all that said... What did you guys think? Do you agree with my ratings? Disagree? Or are there some you're in between about? In case you're going to keep track or keep count, I'll quickly, I'll quickly rank each of the canonically and non-canonically to 007 installments from greatest to meh. Number 27, Dr. No. I mean, it's alright for a startup. Probably was seen as even grander when it was initially released. Number 26, Diamonds Are Forever. For some unknown reason, there seems to be a curse slash bad miracle when it comes to presenting a Bond actor's grand finale. Number 25, Goldfinger. If it was a startup like Dr. No, probably would have given it a higher rating, but as a three-call, it was just disappointingly underwhelming. Number 24, Live and Let Die. Not a bad startup, just a Bond movie that went a little too crazy for its grand entrance. 
Number 23, you only live twice. Though its main goal was political top, uh, topicality, it eventually led to comedic parody. Number 22, 1967's Casino Royale. It literally categorized as parody. Number 21, For Your Eyes Only. If it did not lean so much towards underwhelming exposition, I'd probably love it even more. So, number 20, Octopussy, of all the 007 movies, this one in particular just felt like a filler for Sir Moore to just move on and away from the franchise. But then came A View. Number 19, A View to a Kill. It's a decent 80s action flick, but as a finale slash farewell to a popular Bond actor, it blows. Number 18, Moonraker. It's Bond in space. I mean, come on. Number 17, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, a movie with a bond, one-time Bond that went crawls on the walls extreme. Number 16, Die Another Day, Brosnan's weakest installment. Number 15, The Man with the Golden Gun, surprisingly one of Moore's better installments. Count Duke was also in it. Number 14, No Time to Die, Craig's weakest installment. Number 13, Thunderball, one of Sir Connery's better installments, so good that it was remade a few decades later. Number 12, Never Say Never Again, though a remake of Thunderbolt, I'm a simp for anything starring Kim Basinger. Number 11, Quantum of Solace, so ridiculous it's good. I mean, great. Number 10, Skyfall, an okay anniversary special, not the best. Number 9, Spectre, the twists, the turns, the burns, love it. Number 8, The Living Daylights, now that you make, now that's how you make an anniversary special and a grand entrance for new Bond. Living Daylights, you gotta follow that. Number 7, The World is Not Enough. Merely because it's a Brosnan installment, not because it's a great Bond flick. Number six, From Russia with Love, Connery's best installment. Number five, Tomorrow Never Dies, purely for nostalgia and because it's a Brosnan installment. God, I love Pierce. Number four, The Spy Who Loved Me, Moore's best installment. Number three, License to Kill, Dalton's best installment, plus the most adaptively accurate version of 007 from the books. Number two, Casino Royale, one of the best Bonds in one of the greatest action-adventure spy thriller flick, etc., GoldenEye is number one, obviously, because I think by now, you all know why, right? Anyways, that's our show. Sorry if I misled some avid watchers and did not come up with an episode this week before. I had to take a little break to take the time to write this longer installment of our little franchise of our own, but I promise next week I'll come up with an episode that is sure to spark some attention. Maybe speed up the timing, maybe get to the point, and uh, it's The Flash. Okay, I'm, I'm executing The Flash the tv show if you'd like to express any questions concerns or other comments feel free on my instagram at denny pivak or denny pivak keep how i spell it it's not how i pronounce it sorry that's d-e-n-i dot p-i-v-a-c ciao for now have a great weekend